So ladies and gentlemen, I hit up a show in London on Valentine's Day on my ones. But I did find a guy who was also on his ones, kicked it with him. Shout out to Ruben, who went down into the cloakroom and I never saw him again. In the worst public game, he's Chuck D. Bring the noise. Fifth M Podcast Network. I'm Charlie Taylor. And this is what's good. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Hope you've all had a good week in the circumstances. Yeah, man. This is weird. I was just like... <laughs> he just disappeared. <laughs> oh, gosh. It was hilarious. But uh, it was it was cool, though. It was cool. I didn't even mean to cop, yeah, cop the... Uh, so, I think I've already told this before, but like, um, I had a free gig, quote-unquote. Like, obviously, I paid for it in advance, basically. That's what you know, it's what it counts for. But I get I donated twenty five to um the Jazz Cafe, my favorite music venue in the whole world. Um and in exchange for that, that was during the pandemic, during twenty twenty. And uh, afterwards it was just like um yeah, once we open up you get a free gig, just let us know what gig you want to go to and we'll throw you the ticket for it. Um so I'd I totally forgot about it until just earlier this year and I was just like, okay. Let me just look through, look through, look through. And I saw, uh, I had a few on the list, right? It was like J Electronica. It was like Master Ace, but I've already seen them before. Uh, Slum Village. Uh, yeah, and other stuff, right? So I went for something different, you know, a little bit a little bit out there. Um, abstract Orchestra doing Dilla. Um, so basically just like a big, big band kind of vibes. Um, and they just do Dilla. And, uh, you know, it was great. It was really enjoyable. But I to- I didn't realise. I just I just wanted to, you know, hit up a show. I didn't realise until a week before that it was on Valentine's Day. And I was like, oh, gosh. Oh, no. Ugh, it's just going to be mad people. Just mad couples. Just like, you know, just, just it's just me on my ones. Um, but, you know, I saw this dude. <coughs> dude this dude at the front. Wearing like a, in like a what was it, like a, like a NASCAR jacket. Kind of, you know type thing like loads of you know brands on there stuff like that big juicy fruit on the back um afro dude called ruben and i was just like oh right cool so i went to, i was gonna go to the front anyway right because you know get these pickies off um so yeah i was just like you on your ones he was like yeah i'm not saying <laughs> do you mind if i stay here cool kicked it a little kicked it a little bit got to know him whatever um he's a jazz head from what he was telling me but also like um old school shit as well old school funk uh which is cool uh, but yeah, you know, after the show, I think he went down to the cloakroom, I went outside, I just never saw him again, I was just like, I'm hungry, bruv, I need to dip, <laughs> I need hungry and get this train back, uh, so yeah, I just, I just dip, um, yeah, shout out to, shout out to Ruben, never saw him again, but you know, here's what it is, uh, but yeah, man, good show, really good show, like, I, re- I thought, I, I think the thing I kind of was expecting was not what I was expecting in some way, um, they did have a couple of rappers there, local rappers, uh, come through, um, but they kind of did their own stuff, um, so I thought they would be, you know, doing you know they did the light obviously based on uh the the i forgot the dude i forgot the dude's name who actually did the the sample song um caldwell bobby caldwell that's it um but i thought that you know the dudes would come in and do like commons bit but they didn't do that they just stuck it straight to caldwell so a little bit different on that front um they also do doom as well which i found interesting so uh but yeah no it was really good um had like saxophones right in front of me loved it um, I feel like the Jazz Cafe was probably a poor choice in terms of the in terms of location because it was just a really it's a small stage, right? You can't do much there, um, and it was just like tons of people there. It's like two rows of instruments, and I couldn't really see the back of like the trumpets and that and the trombones. So um, yeah, it's a bit it's a bit mm, on that front. Uh, probably should have picked a bit bigger stage or just hooked up a bit of stage, bigger stage. Um, Jazz Cafe is really you know small and intimate, uh, which is why I love it. Um, but yeah, I just thought the, I thought, <laughs> I thought having the, I was, I was just wondering, that was part of my fascination why I went, I was just like, so how are they going to have 18 instruments, um, on one, on a, on a jazz cafe stage? I was just wondering how that would work logistically. Um, but they got it done, you know, they got it done. Uh, not much issues on that front. And yeah, solid show, can't complain. It was really good. Um, literally just got hit up by my du- by my boy, um, who, uh, we were supposed to hit up Jizza. Um, 25th anniversary of Liquid Swords, and that was supposed to be in 2020. Rescheduled for now, 
at the end of this month, and now it's just got cancelled again or postponed to a later date. So still waiting on that one. It's waiting, been waiting two years, over two years for that freaking event, and uh, still waiting. Uh, but hopefully it'll come down uh, some some point. But yeah, apart from that, can't complain. <sighs> been a been an ick week, honestly. Apart from that, it's been a bit ick. But um, I feel like um, just going to London, going to Camden, going to the Jazz Cafe, um, just really, you know, just brought me out of the funk I was in at that point. So yeah, can't complain on that front. Feeling good. So we have a film, a TV, two society topics, and a music. Um, and yeah. Let's jump right in before Max is before we begin. Email to the IG, just go link all that, all that, all that in the full show notes. Please go peep the articles for yourself, give them a read, and support the writers and make this show possible. And actually, the day after this episode drops, I have uh, something new coming through. Um, new, new thing I'm, new thing I'm doing. Uh, a little bit more, a uh, little bit more intimate, a little bit more well, well read. A um, little bit more effort putting on that on the reading front. Um, but yeah. Just, just, just wait till, just wait till the next day after this, uh, after this episode drops. Um, you know, my, my, just stick to the feet, stick to the feet. Just have, have the, has the, have the uh, notifications on. You know, just uh, something, something new for you. Anyway, with that said, there's a beat drop. That's good to show. In a week where Dame Cressida Dick uh, resigns as Metropolitan Police Commissioner, Russia and US evacuate diplomats from Ukraine. And I feel like I probably should have updated that because it just keeps um, updating every freaking day of what they're going to do over there. No idea. Uh, But that was the one I wrote. Uh, LA Rams win Super Bowl. Super Bowl 56. Um, I could have talked about the halftime show. Hmm. Yeah, I'll probably, I'll probably I wanted to talk about the home t- halftime show actually. Now that I think about it, oh well, saw it now. Uh, Russian ice dancer Camilla Valieva uh, is cleared to continue after com- uh, continue competing after failing a drug test. Um, now you know, outside of the fact that she's like you know 15 years old, right? She is a minor, right? Da 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 da. I mean, I echo the sentiments of Shikari Shikari Richardson. Like, why does she get to continue competing, um, and she carried it wasn't so just a, and you know Russia, ROC why are they why are they even there like it's just Russia it's Russia like having ROC Russian Olympic Committee like it's, it's Russia like you're not fooling anybody right so, and lastly Andrew you know Andrew and Virginia Dufresne reach a settlement over sexual abuse claim. Uh, some people are saying it's rumored uh, to be around uh, 10 to 12 mil um, to not Virginia Dufresne, but for like a charity of her choice, a non-profit of her choice. And it's just interesting how, uh, you know, Andrew's uh, remarks and statements afterwards uh, was just slightly different in terms of like not knowing who Virginia Dufresne was. But now, you, now you're paying out. Why? Why are you ever paying out if you didn't know her? And, uh, you know, what, 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 you know, puffing your chest out all this time. Hmm, interesting. Um, so, you know, in the court of public opinion, Andrew, you are doof a nonce. Right, let's get into it. Um, so, let's <laughs> start with film and TV. This is all about Bel Air, um, the uh, TV reboot of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air. Um, obviously, slightly, if you've seen trailers, slightly more dramatic looking, you know what I mean? More of a somber feel um, towards the whole concept of The Fresh Prince of Bel Air, of, you know, of uh, Will in Philly. Max and all cool, be ball outside the school, start and get trolls from neighborhoods, right? You know, you know the, we all know the song, uh, we all know the concept and the premise. Uh, but yeah, this um, this is called uh, Bel Air began as a twenty five thousand dollars short. It might be the future of the TV reboot. This is by Ashley Lee uh, of the LA Times. Let's jump right in because um, I might, I might give us a watch. I might, I might give it a go. Um, if I, have, if I, if if I have the time. In the first episode of Bel Air, a wide-eyed Will arrives at neoclassical estate, his private driveway lined with picturesque palm trees and luxury cars. As he stands amid the grand foyer's artwork, artworks and double staircase, he's asked if he's alright after everything has happened. Quote, It's all good, Aunt Viv, he responds with a smile and an eye roll. I got in one little fight and my mum got scared. Uh, unquote. Now, throwaway line is an unmistakable wink at the fans of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, who will immediately recognise those words from the still-syndicated sitcom's earworm of a theme song. 
But it hits, it hits different in Bel Air, where by this point in the episode, viewers will have watched Will endure near fatal brawl, a night in jail, and the fearful scolding of his mother, who sends the West Philadelphia teenager to live with estranged, wealthy relatives on the other side of the country. Stretching those seconds long lyrics into a 15 minute opening sequence, after which the title appears in glistening golden graffiti list letters, is an upfront declaration. Bel Air is not just another reboot of a well known TV show. While recent reinventions rest on replicating familiar formats, regurgitating subplots, or recasting actors to reprise their roles, the Peacock series, which premieres Super Bowl Sunday, is a top to bottom reimagining of the story told on the 90s sitcom. And like any uh, successful reinterpretation of a cultural touchstone, Daniel Craig's Bond era, Prince's Joni Mitchell cover, Rosencrantz and Gilderstern are dead, Uh, Bel Air feels uh, simultaneously familiar and uncharted, undeniably rooted in its predecessor and capable of standing on its own. Quote, I'm not typically a fan of reboots either, so I don't take offence to people who might uh, be a little bit hesitant about this show, says Bel Air creator, writer and director Morgan Cooper, a 30-year-old self-taught independent filmmaker and commercial cinematographer. But creatively, I approach Bel Air like any other fully uh, original idea I've had, and I would have never tried to make it if I didn't have anything to say. This take came from a very pure and honest place. So it's exciting to, to subvert people's expectations. That's all any. That's all that any of us want from a story to be surprised in a positive way. Unquote. The idea of a present-day Fresh Prince retelling came to Cooper, who grew up on his on its reruns in May 2018. Quote: I was driving, and the entire vision suddenly hit me. The language, the music, the quality of light, every detail was clear as day, and I had to make it, he recalls. He shot the self-funded 25k project in eight days over two months. What? How's that, how does that work? Eight days, oh right, eight days over two months, right. Eight days in, okay, yeah, no, it's just, I trim me off for some reason. Uh, with the cast, the math, they math in, uh, <laughs> with the cast of local actors uh, from his hometown of Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, another quote, it didn't feel like a gamble to me, that's what we... That's what we have to do as artists. We can't wait for other people to give us permission to make the art that's within us. Uh, we can take it upon ourselves and invest our own money into our dreams, unquote. Structured like an intriguing movie trailer, the homegrown short was uploaded the following year and went viral, attracting attention from nearly every agency and studio in Hollywood, along with Fresh Prince star Will Smith. <coughs> quote, Over the years, Will has been approached many times with how to redo Fresh Prince with a female lead or somebody going from Bel Air to Philly. Whatever came, uh, whatever the new twist is, uh, says Terence Carter, co-president and head of television at Westbrook Studios, which is producing this series. But what Morgan did is more than just a logline. It's the way he shot it. Not that it looked cool and glossy, but how he lit those characters and captured the blank skin. It felt like this could be a different kind of show. One that takes the best parts of the original and uses it as a jumping off point to tell the stories of the black experience that weren't being explored in other television shows, unquote. I want to put a pin in that quote. That's a very interesting quote, actually, in how just um, that makes it intriguing. I, f- I feel that. <clears throat> After all, the MB- NBC uh, hit fish out of water concept was loosely based on the real life experiences of music executive Benny Medina, who as a teenager moved in with composer Jack Elliott and his family in Beverly Hills. After spending part of his childhood in and out of foster homes, uh, quote, the deal was I had to keep a job, keep the grades up and be respectful of household rules, Medina told the Times in 1990, the year the series premiered. We adjusted the premise of the sitcom to fit Will, my upbringing didn't have much comedy in it, unquote. And as goofy as Fresh Prince could be, it was the sitcom's more serious storylines, Uncle Phil's heart attack, Carlton's uh, firearm possession, uh, Will's reacquaintance with his absentee father that cemented his pop culture legacy, the drug one as well. Um, when Will uh, took drugs and um, Colin ended up taking them. That was, that's, oh, really. that's, a, that's an underrated uh, episode. Uh, quote, uh, The show had enough emotional twists and meaningful quandaries to prevent it from being simply written off as a formulaic comedy with loads of, in, loads of in-your-face colloquialisms. Uh, Times staff writer Chio Hidari Koka wrote uh, when the series ended its run in 96. With Smith and the original show's producers on board, Bel Air sparked a bidding war in the summer 2020 with Peacock winning out over Netflix, HBO Max, Amazon and Apple with a two-season deal. I find that interesting considering that The Fresh Prince of Bel Air was on NBC. I feel like, um, I mean, isn't there like a, uh, a IP thing there? Or is this just considered completely fresh? I guess it's considered completely fresh considering there had to be um, an auction basically for it. Interesting. Anyway, continuing on. 
In making his 10-episode debut season, quote, we made sure to keep the standards that were set in Morgan's vision without softening the edges or watering it down in any way, says co-showrunner Rashid Newson. Uh, that short film was proof of concept of what the show's tone and sensibilities needed to be, which is what a lot of first-year shows are searching for. Uh, having that from day one saves everyone weeks of arguing about what it is that we're trying to do here, unquote. Damn, Hillary and Cassandra, uh, Hillary and uh, Vivian looking looking clean on that uh, on that clip, on that little picture. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, that, directi- <laughs> that directive is to continue uh, the conversation, Fresh Prince moderated. How the black experience is not a singular thing, says Cooper. In a way, that's grounded in today's reality. Take the initial relationship between uh, cousins Will and Carlton. In the sitcom's early seasons, their polar opposite positions on music, fashion, how the world works were mostly played for laughs. Quote, uh, Colin was always the part of the joke for being a black man who doesn't get being black, uh, says Ollie Sholatan, uh, who plays a Bel Air version of Carlton opposite Jabari Banks's Will. Watching it as a kid, I never thought about it any deeper, but when you really look at it, this is a teenager who identifies as a person of colour and doesn't feel at home in his own community. In our show, he's worked so hard and changed so much of himself to fit in elsewhere. And then someone shows up out of nowhere, does the exact opposite, and seems to just keep winning and winning, unquote. Will steadily embraces his new world, which disrupts uh, the meticulously maintained lives of the Banks family, who, says Cooper, uh, were intentionally cast as dark-skinned, quote, to be the change we want to see in an industry where colorism has always been an issue, unquote, feel that. Another quote, uh, when someone close to you goes through a metamorphosis like that, it makes you take makes you take stock in who you've been pretending to be versus uh, you versus who you can actually realize yourself to be, says Cassandra Friedman. Uh, Freeman, who plays Vivian Banks, all the characters go through that. It's really beautiful, unquote. Subsequent Bel Air episodes pull on threads the original didn't have the space to fully explore, who, who Uncle Phil and Aunt Viv were before they became parents, or they sacrificed for their affluent lifestyle, why there's all that distance, to, distance between the Banks family and Will's mother. I'm, 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 this is actually getting me kind of gassed for it. I'm not going to lie. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm into this. Uh, let's, uh, let's speed through uh, some of the rest of these quotes. Uh, with every idea, no matter how good it was, we had to step back and ask ourselves, even if you never heard of the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, is it still compelling? Says uh, co-showrunner TJ Brady. This show has to be able to stand up on its own for audiences who are watching cold, unquote. If it succeeds, Bel-Air may well inspire Hollywood to modernise, dramatise, and add, do- add new dimensions to other beloved TV comedies, continuing a trend that includes Netflix and Pop's late uh, lamented remake of One Day at a Time. Another quote. I could definitely see a lot of other shows trying to make take this approach, says Matthew A. Cherry, who directs the ninth episode. This is a really unique situation. The original IP, in search of property, for those who don't know, um, had so many dramatic elements in it already. The way it even came to life as something so unex- is as something so ex- unexpected. Uh, there's a great value in being first, and it's very rare that people afterward can replicate those things and recapture that magic in the same way. But the brilliance is Morgan. The slang, the music, the look, everything in the show just feels so natural and organic coming from him. He does that in a way, he does it in that inner way that doesn't feel so coordinated and is actually authentically super cool. And he's just an incredible person, unquote. Cooper is attached to Peacock's hip-hop drama, Let Me Hear a Rhyme. Uh, says he has, quote, no shortage of, idea- shortage of ideas. I've got eight other shows I want to set in my hometown of Kansas City. I've got five different movies that I'm dying to make. I've got an album and a children's book I want to release, unquote. Oh, well, don't we all, bro? Don't we all? Um, he isn't nervous about how Bel Air will be received, like the rest of Cars creators. He even loved being spoofed by Saturday Night Live. Listen, there's always going to be people for whom this may not be their cup of tea, he uh, he says. Oh, Americans say cup of tea. Interesting. Um, as I if we try too hard to appeal to everyone, then we don't make things that are meaningful to anyone. I think viewers can sense that energy, so it's very important to check in about that intention. Why am I doing this? Do I have something to say? What do I believe in as an artist? Those answers inform all your choices. Uh, you have to really remember why you're making art in the first place. Uh, it's got to be from done from a place of love. From that standpoint, I think anything is possible. <clears throat> that's a great. That's a great uh, quote to leave on. I want to go back to the quote just for the fact um, I'm over time. But like, I, 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 I don't know, man. I think this is kind of interesting. I feel like the um, the it it does seem very in your face, right? In t- it does seem. I mean, in your face in like uh, uh, how simple it sounds, right? You take a comedy and you dramatize it, right? And yeah, sure, I can see that. Um, I guess the cynical side of me is just like, um, okay, so if this is if this is you know how 
you know um, how Miss Ashley Lee or whoever the editor right um you know uh, made made this a uh, title of the article it might be the future TV reboot like I don't know man I'm just I, I just feel like so what you're just gonna make every comedy drama like because you know I'm 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 I, I like my comedies as well but then again um it's kind of just like when musicians switch up their artistry and they do you know, let's just say they do happy music at the start and then they start doing more you know a little bit more grounded or depressing music you know um, um later on just go back to the old shit really like if, if, if that's if that's what it is then go back to the old shit like people at studios will or, or um streamers or tv stations will show exactly what you want show what you want um if you lot are interested enough right if you that's why that's why Everyone keeps watching The Office, apparently. That's why everyone keeps watching Friends, and that's why they keep. That's why they still get um, bidded on every time the contract ends, right? Of just um, being shown on streaming sites. Uh, you know, that's, this is what it is, right? And that's why they. That's why they put that shit out front. Um, they try and make new shit, but you know, you guys keep going back to The Office and Friends, so you know, just they're just gonna keep giving the people what they want on that front. Um, but yeah, man, I'm ex- I'm I'm looking forward to this. It's, it's kind of it's kind of lit. I might I'm gonna see if I can give a give it give it a watch. Um, just, you know, see how it feels. And yeah, man, I'm, I'm big ups, big ups, uh, big ups to the whole crew on that one. I'm, I'm feeling that. hop into uh, society um, so this is an interesting article I just found, I, I found it very interesting uh, from a history, historical perspective and this is an interesting wrinkle in like uh, how we you know, think about free speech or whatever um, this is called how 17th century uh, centuries Britain's uh, cancel culture quote unquote, uh, can help us understand the importance of free speech, this is by Dan Taylor and Ariel uh, Hesseyon um, of the Open University and Goldsmiths uh, University of London respectively um, and yeah, just drop right in because uh, this is, this is this fascinating. It's via the conversation, by the way. Uh, free speech is the right to express one's opinions without censorship or restraint. Uh, as a cornerstone of modern liberal democracies, nowadays it is considered a basic right in the UN's 1948 Declaration of Human Rights and it is enshrined in British law. Yet, free speech is neither historically well established nor widespread. In many parts of the world, authoritarian governments have pre- prevented citizens' rights to free speech through censorship, mass attention, surveillance, and harassment. At the same time, within liberal democracies, there have been growing concern about the overreach of cancelling or no-platforming those with controversial views. Arguments against free speech have been made for centuries. In 17th century England, saying or writing something blasphemous would have got you would have got your tongue bored through with a red-hot iron. Okay, drastic. Um, that is what happened to the Quaker James Naylor in 1656. Naylor engaged in a calculated provocation. He imitated Jesus Christ during a time when many of his religious contemporaries thought that the world was about to end. Other than having his tongue pierced, he was whipped through the streets of London and had his forehead branded with the letter B for good measure. Fuck. Uh, 17th century England was a country in crisis. For this was a time of fear, superstition, unaccountable monarchs, wars, religious strife, natural disasters, and the so-called Little Ice Age. Uh, that severely impacted food production and transportation networks. As well as the struggles between King Charles I and Parliament, there were also rebellions in Scotland and Ireland, all of which were responsible for sparking the civil wars that took place throughout the British Isles. There was also specific attacks on free speech. In particular, Parliament reimposed press licensing in June 1643. Essentially, the system enabled specially appointed officials to suppress inflammatory text prior to publication or else tone down controversial content. It was amid these events that poet and polemicist uh, John Milton wrote, why do you have to put that in italics? It's hard to read as it is. Areopagitica. Areopagitica, I'm going to say that, 1644. Uh, Here he argued that press censorship was a mark of tyranny and that despite persecution, truth would eventually prevail. Another influential figure at the time was the Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Uh, For Spinoza, there were two key arguments for the right to free speech. First, by allowing ideas and viewpoints to proliferate, societies and governments can make better decisions that are more representative of the common good. And second, speech and thought can never be truly controlled anyway. 
Any regime that attempts to bully and control the minds of citizens only ends up inciting resentment and rebellion. Both Milton and Spinoza were writing in societies marked by varying degrees of censorship and surveillance. Taken together, the, their ideas would directly influence the Enlightenment. Uh, we may not like everything that we hear or read, they argued, but societies are stronger when the speech of one and all is, is protected. When Milton published Aria, I'm just going to see Aria, um, to, no one had been burned at stake for hearsay in England for more than 30 years. What remained, however, were public book burnings. These mass book burnings, you say? Interesting. Sounds like something recent. Uh, what remained, however, were the public book burnings. These mass public displays can be thought of as Protestant autos da fe, or rituals, ritual displays of humiliation that function as a form of purification. They were seen by some contemporaries as echoing an aspect of the terror practiced by the Inquisition. They operated in several predominantly Catholic areas, a judicial institution established by, uh, to eradicate hearsay. Uh, over 100 different tiles were ordered to be burned in 17th century England, most between the years of 1640 and 1660, when Milton was writing. While I keep, I keep tripping up over these, this word, ecle- ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical. I think I'll get it right. Uh, I just I hate the Ecclesiastes bit, like Ecclesi, Ecclesi. Uh, and secular authorities could no longer burn the bodies of convicted blasphemers and rebels. They could still burn their, burn their books. Oh, there's a picture of Mouse. There you go. They got it. They got the point. Okay. Sadly, this isn't a matter of historical curiosity. Public book burners are still familiar, even in countries supposedly committed to free speech. Just recently, in a Tennessee, pa- uh, there you go. In Tennessee, a pastor organized a public book burner ceremony to combat quote unquote demonic influences and witchcraft. 2022, and we're still talking about witchcraft, ladies and gentlemen. Love it. Ah, America. Uh, more generally, the U.S. has seen growing desire to ban books deemed difficult, deemed difficult, difficult, really difficult books. So, what we're going to ban academia, academia as a whole? Because read, go read an academic paper, you'll be, your head will spin from page one. Um, uh, deemed difficult or obscene, such as Margaret Atwood's *The Handmaid's Tale*. Really, there's a whole TV show about it, guys. Like, come on. Um, and Art Spiegelman's moving account of the Holocaust mouse. The American Library Association re- recently reported that it's uh, received an unprecedented rise in requests to ban objectionable books, around 330 books in total. Guarantee you, whoever's making the, who's who's making that list of books have read zero. I guarantee you. I'll guarantee you they've read zero of those books. Um, that free speech is still, though only symbolically, burnt at the state today. Uh, points to the enduring challenges presented by difficult, unpopular, repugnant ideas. Suspicion against all types of censorship is, censorship is a healthy sign that the public is willing and capable to make up their own minds. Thanks to the likes of Milton and Spinoza, the attacks on free speech of the 17th century eventually gave way to a much more liberal liberal culture in parts of Western Europe. Had there been not had there not been this reaction to censorship during the early modern period, we wouldn't have had some some of the ideas of religious tolerance and democratic participation that went on to underpin the Enlightenment. Um, and they put the Enlightenment in um, in, a, in 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 a capitals there, uh, capital E, so the Enlightenment. Um, so the Age of Enlightenment, by the way, that's what they meant uh, between the seventies and eighteenth centuries. Um, so yeah, um, that's a very fascinating article actually. Um, just um, in terms of how, I mean, always as always, history, you know, kind of just repeats itself. The fact that we're, we're we've just people have just gone back to trying to burn books and shit and i don't think that's ever stopped right i don't think there's been any anywhere where um you know people stop stop burning books for whatever reason most of the time i mean i remember like a family guy episode like in like his first couple of seasons where um meg was a uh part of like a religious thing and uh, she tried to burn books at the end of the episode sorry Oh, and um, yeah, so you know, so I don't think it's something that died out anytime soon. But the fact that it's come back, especially in like America, and you know, and how we talk about, especially how we talk about social media, I feel like that's kind of the thing that trips us up now. It's not, I I don't get tripped up by you know people publishing books, right? Because you you have the decision to buy that book. You know what I mean? Like you, if you you don't have to read Mein Kampf, right? If you want to read it for education purposes, or if you're 
into it. <laughs> I mean, shit. Do you, bro? Um, not my steez, but stay away from me. But, you know, do, do you, bro? Uh, whatever reason you cop Mein Camp for, for example, that's your right. Go buy Mein Camp. Go, go quote Mein Camp if you really want to. See how it goes, but go for it, bro. If you really want to go be on that steez, go for it. You are free to do that, right? But the trip up that people have in the modern times is when it's in so when it's on social media. When I see and you know obviously this gets into the conversation echo chambers. But when I get into like when I get onto like Twitter or whatever and I just see some dumb shit, I'm just like, why the fuck is this on my timeline? You know what I mean? Why why the fuck is this on my timeline? I don't care. I just don't care. Um, and, but I'm but again, I don't. I'm fine with people tweeting right. It's Twitter. Or um or put putting whatever shit on social media. It's up to you, bro. You are free to do that, right? But I think that's where people get tripped up. Where when uh, someone gets a, uh, I don't know when 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 someone gets blocked or whatever, or when um or like you know when Joe Rogan gets bitched on and he's like, oh, I'm getting cancelled. I'm like, it's like, bro, you're still talking on a podcast, bro. You're fine. You're fucking fine. Your free speech is there. It's fine. You're good. Right, just because people are calling you out on your bullshit, I mean, you're getting cancelled. Um, so yeah, I mean, I've kind of gone off the rails on what the actual article was about, but it is interesting. I feel like, from a historical perspective, just to get that kind of um, just to see how those uh, uh, the roots of kind of free speech come about, and um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a nice nice little bit of history to learn uh, on your on, on on whatever you're doing as you're listening to this. Let's continue on with the society. Um, this is all about race and society. Um, this is an article via Navarra Media by Kojo Karam. Uh, this is called Decolonization Was Never All Culture War. The title of that really trips me up because, like, what, what never all culture war? Like, uh, just the wording puts me off. Um, so, yeah, this is just an interesting opinion piece um, I saw. Um, and, you know, I'm all, all, all about that, uh, you know, just conversating about uh you know what you people you know get scared about and don't actually understand actually don't take a lot of time to look into it uh says Joe since the statue of Edward Colston was dumped into the Bristol Harbour by Black Lives Matter protests in June 2020 the British media has been seized by an interminable debate over the virtues or ills of confronting Britain's imperial legacy talk of decolonization has been at the heart of an explosive culture war excuse me uh, that has seen statues brought down and road names changed, uh, all in the face of an aggressive backlash by politicians and journalists who insist such ge- who insist such gestures are quote unquote cancelling history. While it may have ignited uh, the pages of newspapers and magazines, for many more people across the country, the decolonization debate has been experienced as indulgent intellectual masturbation for the chattering classes. Who has time to engage in moral judgments about the past while trying to survive a pandemic, an economic crisis, and climate breakdown all at once? Decolonization was never a solely or even primarily cultural project. However, in the mid to late uh, 20th century, as the world of em- empires was coming to a close, uh, decolonization became less a lens through which to reimagine the political and economic structures of the globe. Uh, the outcome of this project continues to have a direct material impact upon people in Britain today. From b- Far from being a distraction from real, real world concerns, the study of decolonization can help us understand contemporary economic struggles, such as why the uh, upcoming cost of living crisis is likely to see the poorest Britons hit hardest while oil companies get to rob the bank without the need for masks. While the British public prepares to face a steep rise in the cost of energy, the oil giant BP, whose CEO Bernard Looney um, has described how the increase in energy prices has turned his company into a quote-unquote cash machine, has enjoyed profits of £9.5 billion over the past year. As such, there are growing calls for the government to impose a windfall tax on companies like BP. For the government to pursue such a policy, however, would require it to take drastic action against a company that has enjoyed the law support of the British state since the heyday of empire. Before British e- before BP was British Petroleum, it was known as the Anglo-Persian Oil Company. 
founded after British businessman William Knox Darcy. Uh, or Darcy. <laughs> I never, I, I never know how to say it. I, I just say Darcy, but I, I always want to say Darcy, Darcy, like Mbappe. <laughs> um, William Knox Darcy uh, struck oil in Persia in, in 1908. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company was the latest in a long line of quote-unquote private companies that did the dirty work of extending uh, Britain's imperial reach across the world, including the Hudson Bay Company, Colston's Royal African Company, and perhaps the most famous of all, the East India Company. How fascinating is that, by the way? I just pause him for a minute. Like how fascinating they actually named corporations just based on entire countries and entire continent. The Royal African Company? Are you fucking mad? Like the East India Company. Think about that, guys. Think about that. They just they just went they just went, here's a country and let's just make it a whole company. Like you are all citizens, you are all employees of a company, basically. It's just oh, fuck. So fascinating. Anyway. Today we think of colonialism as the bloodstained history of conflicts between nations or even clashes between races. Uh, but it was, to a large extent, a corporate endeavour, with private companies making use of the unified structure of empire to extract and trade goods across the world. The problem started once those empires began to fall apart after World War II, and decolonisation became the order of the day. The wave of, the wave of newly muscular third world sovereignty spread to Iran, where the election of Mohammed uh, Mossadegh there's two D's, Mossadegh, I'm going to say Mossadegh, uh, as Prime Minister signalled trouble for Britain's colonial oil company. Mossadegh came to power with a plan to use the oil produced on land within the sovereign state of Iran to fund mass education, housing and welfare programmes. This meant getting getting a better deal from the Anglo-Persian oil company uh, than the one that was currently in place, where Iran received only uh, 20% of the value of the oil extracted from its lands. The Anglo-Persian Oil Company had been willing to change their name to the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company to reflect the change in times. Gosh, isn't that just, isn't that glorious? Like how they just, yeah, oh, fine, fine, we'll put Iran in it. I'll put Iran in the title. That's not the fuck, that, that, that doesn't do anything. You can't, like, it's just, oh, I love it. I love how they do that. They just, they just all, all um, uh, surface level changes. Oh, fine, we'll change the name. Gosh, right. Oh, it's not Facebook anymore. It's Meta, right? But we're still going to take your privacy. Um, anyway, uh, to reflect the change of times, but beyond this rebranding, they weren't giving up anything else. La di da. Least of all the profits they were enjoying. The year before Mossadegh's win uh, election, win the Anglo-Iranian oil company uh, registered profits of 100, 170 million uh, pounds, around five billion in twenty twenty. Uh, frustrated by the failure of negotiations with the company, Mossadegh decided to tackle them head on. On May first, nineteen fifty one, Mossadegh seized the assets of the AIOC. Uh, claiming that if third world sovereignty was to mean anything, then the democratically elected government should have more say over what occurs within its territory than foreign multinational corporations. The plan for nationalisation included a provision for the Iranian government to give 25% of the profits they ha- they made from the oil fields to the AIOC as compensation for their loss. For the directors of the company and their allies in the British government, this offer of compensation was just a th- further insult. To them, Mossadegh's actions were theft, plain and simple. You think that, wouldn't you? Uh, the Westminster government uh, in charge at the, t- at the start of the Iran oil crisis was the same government that is now widely canonised as the most progressive in British history. Clement Attlee's Labour government was at that very moment embarking on an expansion in unemployed insurance and council housing, giving birth to the NHS in a welfareist project that included nationalism of private industries, a uh, nationalisation of private industries. Over the course of just one term in office, Attlee took into public ownership the essential but fiscally unproductive industries of gas, electricity and coal and the railways. Uh, Given the circumstances, the Attlee government might have been expected to have some understanding of Mossadegh's desire to use this nation's resources to invest in the education but health welfare of its citizens. You think, right? But, yeah, if the Iranians were expecting sympathy from a progressive Labour government, they were soon to be disappointed. Oh, it's just, I, I haven't even read this fully, and I'm just, I'm just, I, you can, you can, it's so easy, you could call it. It's, it's just, it's textbook. Textbook bullshittery. Uh, the government's first instinct upon hearing of Mossadegh's nationalisation <laughs> was to launch a military invasion of Iran to take back the oil fields by force. However, with the UK still counting the costs of World War II, a full-on military invasion would have been an expensive endeavour. 
As an alternative, the Atli government imposed a naval blockade and economic sanctions on Iran, blocking Iran's industry's ability to access key British, uh, key British exports like steel and freezing Iranian bank accounts held with British banks. Britain then submitted a formal complaint to the recently formed UN, uh, claiming that Iran's nationalisation actions had placed the world, <laughs> placed world peace at risk. <laughs> oh, fucking hell. Oh, even the most, one of the most progressive British governments still fucking about. Oh, God damn. Oh, oh it's just, it's exhausting, but you, you can't help but laugh, like, to stop for yourself from crying. World plate, but imagine that world peace at risk. Boo fucking who, bruv. To the shock and embarrassment of the government, they were unable to secure enough votes from the UN Security Council to support their claim. <laughs> Oh, they then took. This is com. This is comical. Uh, they then took Iran to the ICJ, International Court of Justice, where they would lose again. With legal routes exhausted and the military options seemingly unviable, the British government eventually turned to the more underhand options for dealing in with the Iranian problem. As the crisis dragged on, Ali's Labour government was replaced by the Conservatives in October '51, ushering back into power an old ally, one-time pay consultant of the AIOC. Winston Churchill, he's back, ladies and gentlemen, back in action. Uh, Churchill's government mobilized the anti-communist fears of U of the U.S. and in 1953 with the new president Ike Eisenhower um, and his administration fearing that Mossadegh's success could either inspire even more radical policies by governments across Asia, Latin America, and Africa. U.S. support for drastic action in Rome was secured. Documents classified in, declassified in 2017 detail the precursor meetings held in 1952 between Sir Christopher Steele of the British Embassy in Washington and the US Assistant Secretary of State Henry Byrode uh, in order to organise a coup against Mossadegh in Iran, codenamed Operation Ajax. In August 53, the US and UK teamed up with uh, wealthy Iranian military general Fazlollah uh, Zahedi to a stage of riot that led to Mossadegh being removed from office and placed first in prison and then under house arrest. He was still under house arrest until his death in 67. Sahedi succeeded, succeeded Mossadegh as Prime Minister, and with a new pro-Western administration in place, the AIOC regains its oil fields. Of course, as any good business person knows, the best way to rescue a brand damaged by controversy is to... Go on, go on say it with me, guys. Say it with me. I, I've li we've literally said it already. We've literally said it already. Change the name. So the so following the coup, the ARC rebranded itself as British Petroleum. At the time of the crisis, Ludwig von Mises, I'm saying Mises or Mises, uh, Mises, uh, one of the godfathers of neoliberalism, understood the hypocrisy of Britain undertaking nationalisation at home, but defended the AIOC in Iran. He wrote, "Quote: If it is right for the British to nationalise the uh, British coal mines, it cannot be wrong for the Iranians to nationalise the Iranian oil industry." Unquote. Of course, for von Mises, excuse me, the solution was not for the British to recognise Iran's right to nationalisation. Instead, the way to correct uh, this hypocrisy was for Britain to accept greater domestic privatisation, and over the coming decades, this vision came to pass. In 1987, as part of a great rush to privatise as many state resources as possible, Margaret Thatcher's government, oh God, good old Maggie, sold its final shares in BP, uh, the company for Britain, for which Britain had just a few decades earlier risked international embarrassment to protect. In 1998, British Petroleum uh, completed a merger with American oil giant Amoco, creating BP Amoco, or just BP for short, and became one of the largest companies in the world. Long term, what was the, re what was the reward Britain received for throwing its weight behind the AIOC in the 1950s? In its current incarnation as BP, the company has been consistently cited as one of the UK's consistent tax-avoiding firms. It has also been responsible for causing huge environmental damage, including the Deepwater Horizon disaster, the largest oil spill in history. Boris Johnson, who was then a London mayor, immediately leapt to BP's defence, claiming that anyone attacking the company for uh, for the 11 lives lost in the oil spill, the devastation of wildlife in the Gulf of Mexico, was just anti-British. Oh my days! Yet yeah, is BP really a noble commercial representation of British people? Today, Boris Johnson, his Prime Minister, and his government looks like he will once again protect BP by rejecting calls for, the windfall, for a windfall tax on the company to help hard up Britons facing the energy crisis. Their directors will be making champagne toasts over the increase in value of dividends and share buyback options, 
whilst many of the families stare in exasperation at their monthly budgets, trying to reconfigure the numbers so uh, that they somehow balance. The study of decolonization can help us understand how the state of play came into being. By siding with the AIOC in conflict with, the, with third world sovereignty, uh, Britain helped set the global economy on a path where corporate power was increasingly estranged from democratic control. As the empire was crumbling, both Labour and Conservative governments treated old colonial companies like they were a beloved family dock that was allowed to bite whatever it wanted outside the house, but was expected to behave as soon as it returned home. Now, in, 21st century Britain, in, tw- in the 21st century, Britain finds that these companies are no longer obedient pets, but wild animals leaving everyone in those, even those at home, terrified of what actions they may take next. We're often told that the whole decolonisation debate is just another attack on British people, but as people across the country are preparing for further economic pain while corporate profits soar, if given the choice again, will we still side with BP against the Mossadegs of this world? Boy, yeah, that was a that was an interesting. Just um, <clears throat> oh, this is from an, this is okay. So this is articles adapted from an extract from his upcoming book, Uncommon Wealth: Britain and the Aftermath of Empire. Okay, that might be a cop. Oh yes, boys. Oh, that might be that definitely might be a cop. Mister Kojo Karam, if you are listening, if please, please, I beg you, just do an audiobook version. I will get into it much quicker. Please, I will cop the book after I if I if I like if I like after the audiobook, I'll definitely cop a hard copy. I do I've done that several times with my books. Um but the same with vinyl. It's literally the same as vinyl. Um but yeah, I want that if you please put that on audiobook if you can. <clears throat> but yeah, that is fascinating. That was a fascinating just weave. Like uh, I was I was like midway through it, I was just like, where's he going with this? Where's he going with this? But he weaved that back so fucking tastily, like and you know, it's interesting how just um, you know, people just get triggered over the wrong things right it's it's so fascinating to me like um literally uh the day the day before i record day before recording this um i saw something about boris johnson talking about uh you know russian sanctions or whatever you know obviously due to the russia ukraine uh russo uh ukraine uh crisis right now and um i literally tweeted i was just like so why don't you you know um, shut down the Russian oligarchs that have, you know, spent the past decade in change, uh, give you know, in around a decade, um, purchasing and the most expensive London real estate and doing fuck all with it, not actually living in them. They're just assets. They're just yeah, they're just there. They just buy them up. They just buy up land for assets, um, as assets. Nobody lives in them. Nobody does anything. And now there was actually articles this month or last month where their children are doing it. Their offspring. Russian oligarch offspring are now um, copying uh, London real estate just for, just, you know, just because, for assets, right? That's wrong. That's wrong. Like, we, the, talking about, you know, stuff like immigration, stuff like that, bro, this is all, all space like this should be valuable, yet we're just, co- oh my god, it's just, it's just depressing, and it's just silly, honestly, to just be, um, to just take in all this information, right, and uh, have all of these crises going on, and I genuinely feel we don't have to be in this pro- in this predicament. We really don't. You know, France is in a similar uh, place, but they're not. Their price hike isn't as large as ours. Like, um, you know, I don't know if there's anything past that. I only got that from a simple graph, so maybe there's some context I missed. But you know, shit, it was a enlightening fucking graph, so. Maybe there's there's something in that. Maybe there's something in that. Um, but yeah, it's just fascinating how people uh take a just you know, just just take one word and get all triggered over it. Yeah, decolonization. Yeah, you're removing history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're just barking, barking, barking. It's like shut up and fucking listen for once, right? Just to stop. Just just be silent for one minute and look into. What these people, like Kojo Karam and others, are talking about. Just listen for a minute. Just listen for a minute. And just try to get where they're coming from. We're not doing it because we fucking hate you. We're doing it because we don't want to fucking suffer. And we don't want our society to suffer. And our society is suffering on several fronts. Because you keep bullshitting. Because you, government, I'm talking to the government here, aren't taxing the right people. Like, it's so, it's so 
on on the fucking face. Like it's it's not even that hard. It's just like, oh, BB don't pay any tax. How about we just get him to pay tax? It's literally that simple sometimes. But anyway, rant over. Government's bullshit. We all know that. Let's finish on something light. This is a music topic. Um, this is by Miss uh, Barbara Ellen uh, via The Guardian. It's called What Does Your Music Taste Say About You? Nothing Actually. And uh, I just straight up disagree on that front. Uh, but let's just see what the article says and then maybe, maybe my taste will change. You know? Maybe my tastes will change. <laughs> anyway, uh, does music taste reflect personality? A study from the University of Cambridge involving three. 350,000 participants, hmm, okay, from 50 countries, okay, that's a decent sample size, I like that, um, uh, from 50 countries across six continents, posits that people with similar traits across the globe are drawn to similar music genres, so extroverts love Ed Sheeran, Beyonce and Justin Timberlake, the open, thrill to Daft Punk, Radiohead and Jimi Hendrix, the agreeable are into Marvin Gaye, U2 and Taylor Swift, the neurotic enjoy presumably as much as they can, the work of David Bowie, Nirvana and the Killers and so on. While the study doesn't claim to be definitive, how strange to be allotted one personality trait genre each. Um, it sounds like calling me beautiful for music. Uh, what sound best goes with my personality? Did you bring along swatches? Uh, certainly back when I worked for the uh, NME, uh, journalists, musicians and readers alike resisted being wrangled into such rigid categories. And I do agree with that. I feel like, um, you know, calling... You know, calling me just a, if I call myself just, I call myself just a hip hop student, just, you know, on the face, right? But, you know, I'm into other things, right? I'm into jazz, I'm into, uh, you know, a bit of R&B here and there, you know what I mean? Reggae, um, getting into drum and I've been slowly getting back into, I've had a couple of drum and bass phases over the past, like, you know, month or so. Just like, you know, some days where I'm just like, I need some high energy, I want some, you know what I mean? Just some high energy shit. So, you know, my taste is my tastes are varied, but um, most of the time it's usually hip hop. Anyway, but then again, there's lots of different types of hip hop. So you can you can you can be specific, specific as you want, or you can be as broad as you want, and that's kind of just where I feel I feel like this particular argument goes. Anyway, uh, most half serious fact because you know, say you're a rock fan, do you? You're into post rock or you know whatever rock, you know, yacht rock, <laughs> like stuff like that. Anyway, uh, most half serious music fans would consider their taste eclectic which seems more feasible than a distinct personality type exclusively cleaving to one genre. And it's been faithfully replicated across the globe. The idea of, say, an English person, an Argentinian and a South African separately thinking, I feel alienated, I will signal that by performantly, uh, <laughs> signal that by performatively listening to Nirvana's Nevermind forever. Uh, to me, this is not how people are. This is not how music works. Music taste, like the humans who possess it, seems built from a dizzying array of variables. What was your age, sex, background? Growing up, what was the dominant culture and did you subscribe to it? Were Are you rebellious, political, apolitical, withdrawn, hedonistic, a loner? Do you feel more yourself in the real world or online? When you select a song, are you happy, miserable, in love, heartbroken, angry? Or none of the above? Just trying to chill while you make dinner? Thanks. Uh, that's pertinent. Um, actually, uh, while, you, while you are listening... When, while, where you are when you listen to music, what are you doing? Working out, driving, strolling, reading, work, leisure, in a pub or at a club, lying in a darkened room with AirPods in. This is a key difficulty with personality typing music. At any one time, listening can be affected uh, by a plethora of variants, including location, situation, activity, outside forces, memory, mood, need, whim. While taste can overlap with tr cultural tribalism, uh, the spurious notion of good, bad taste, and need to belong. Uh, this is mainly a youthful tick, and it will pass. What's left is the individual, the ceaselessly mercurial personality, which can feel many different things within the space of a day, which isn't always drawn to the same style of songs, which doesn't always uh, want to be the same person. The chatterbox might want to disappear into the mist with Leonard Cohen, the depressive to boogie with Ariana Grande, the introvert to headbang to Megadeth, Music can reflect your nature, but it can also take you out of yourself. It's an escape shoot, a liberator, as much as it is a mirror. That's an interesting quote. I think I think like that's me. That's 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 kind of my thoughts towards all this in a nutshell. Actually, it can you can be. I can, I think it's both. 
The answer is both, right? Anyway, let's let's continue and I'll go, you know, and then I'll say my piece. Some people don't even like music and those people are demons. I'm sorry. Like, if you don't like any music, like, there's something wrong with you. I'm sorry. Like, that's just, that's just weird. I find that a bit weird. Do you, any, I don't know anybody that's not into any music. That's just freaky. That is honestly freaky. Um, they don't yearn for a soundtrack to their life. They just want neutral background noise. It used to be termed coffee table music. For the rest of us, it continues to be an era of engorged culture and musical plenty. Uh, over the years, popular music has become akin to a vast junk food menu. Tasty but confusing. What do you want to listen to? Pop, rock, disco, hip-hop, punk, grime, goth, house, reggae, soul, indie, folk, gospel, dub, heavy metal, psychedelia, chaz, jazz, prog. Uh, the list sprawls on even uh, sprawls on even before you get into myriad of fusions, uh, myriad fusions of genres. We're streaming. Spotify, the rise of the superstar DJ Etel. We have completely and irre- 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 irrevoc- irre- irre- irrevocably, irrevocably. I think I bought that. Irrevocably changed the way we consume and interact with music. Volume, distribution, payment, or otherwise. Uh, there's a thought. Uh, perhaps there should be a global cheapskate personality category for those who don't pay for music. Even when people do pay, there's a sense of cultural free-for-all. Generally, young people, quote-unquote young people, approach music song by song, anthem by anthem, club banger by club banger. What research-based personality type, open, agreeable, uh, could be applied to such an uh, elastic approach? Do we just ignore how, like a uh, like a generational bushfire, is caught on throughout age, race, and class? How, like it or not, we are all in shuffle mode now. If, like me, you're still partial to listening to whole albums, me, digital or vinyl, you may feel increasingly like the last dodo, stubbornly playing Hounds of Love all the way through, uh, creeping ever closer to easy listening extension. Uh, just to rub it in, it might not even be your music taste anymore. Past a certain age, people's tastes freeze. I think the factual number is 32, if I remember correctly. There was a fact I saw about that, um, that your tastes stop at age 32. I think it's 32 or 33, somewhere around that time. Uh, go on a long pause, a form of cultural atrophy sets in. I'm scared to death at that moment, by the way, of just being, just, just having atrophy and just not exploring anymore. Uh, uh, what you think defines you? may just be your music taste of 5, 10, 20 years ago, and according to Cambridge findings, you now have an outdated personality to go with it. Diverting through these uh, studies that are, there's, ugh, diverting though these studies are, there's no foolproof way of personality typing music. That jukebox embedded in your skull may end up rusted and ugly, unfit for public consumption, but will always be unique. Tailored music is, exists only uh, in the fevered minds of marketing and advertising executives who want to zone you, sell you stuff. Um, it's not a case of too much music, rather than rather that there's too much human condition, too many people, restless, vivid, alive, thinking, feeling, and wanting differently from one moment to the next. That was an interesting article. That was very interesting. I feel like, um, you know, the, the I feel like the title of the thing's kind of a bit misleading, because your music taste does say things about you in that moment, right? It it does, you know, maybe it's not the whole part of you. It doesn't say everything about you, but it does say something about you. I'm half and half on it. I think I feel like the answer is both, if, if that makes any sense. It's like none and everything. Um, apart from the people that, you know, don't listen to music. Demons. Absolute demons. Um, so, yeah, I mean... You know, if I if I go if I remember there's like a YouTube YouTuber who like um or just yeah just like a random person it was like one of these YouTube videos that just became a thing but like um uh, they were like on Times Square and they were just asking they were just asking pe- people uh, what you listening to right now and they just say it they just say the song and then the song plays and uh, on the YouTube video right and you know that's cool. It says something. It says something about them, right? It's that 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 moment they're do they they're they're in the moment of I'm listening to this for some reason because even if I even if you like uh, me, right? And you have a regular rotation, right? If you're listening to a playlist like most people do, right? There's some there's some songs on that you're gonna skip, right? You're gonna skip some songs, even if it's like um even if it's a very 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 specific playlist of you know music from the 1980s that are all about sex, whatever, right? You, you you might change you might skip one of those so that's saying something the fact that you skip that particular track right that you don't want to hear that particular track why don't you want to hear that particular track right um i don't think there's any 
I don't think there's uh, this Cambridge report can it, it can't be definitive. It can never be definitive because of the fact that we evolve every time we listen to a song. I might listen to one song one day and have the same playlist on the next day and skip that song. I've done that before. I'm sure you've done that before, right? Um, so it is interesting. Um, but yeah, I feel like the I feel like the title of the article is a bit misleading. Like, what did Jimmy's taste say about you? Nothing actually. Not completely nothing. It's not definitive, but it says something. Not everything, not nothing, but it says something. All right, that's it, ladies and gentlemen. On the Fifth End Podcast Network, I've been Charlie Taylor, and it's been what's good. Intro music has been Too Much by Vanilla. You can find, uh, find his link in the full show notes. Thanks to Nappy High for being used charismatic for the interlude. You can also find his link in the full show notes. Thanks to Joel Breakers for being used too much. You can find the link in the full show notes. I'll switch it up a little bit. Got tripped up. But anyway, we move. Uh, hope you all have a good week. Wish I always try and do the same. But until the next time. What does this what does listener what's good say about you? Interesting. Pick that up. <laughs> but until the next time. Take it easy. Ladies and gentlemen.